Shall we pray together? Mighty God, you spoke to your people in the pillar of cloud as they walked together in the wilderness. Speak to us through your word today that we may hear you calling us out of the wilderness places of our lives and into new places you have promised to show us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Comedian George Carlin had a single quip. I put a dollar in a change machine. Nothing changed. Kind of goes with one of my favorite jokes. How many United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> change! <laughs> That's our typical response, isn't it? <laughs> but change is something that we all have to face at one time or another. Tourists do it when they leave their home and go to a foreign country and learn the language or customs just to get by. Tourists do it when they go around and look at places and have to navigate the change or buying things in a gift shop. Children do it when they start a new school. Children do it when they take on a new class every year and pick up a new subject or new things about that subject. People who were separate and decide to make a life together for the first time face some big changes while they're putting that household together. Changes we make might not be permanent, but change itself is a constant part of life. Wouldn't it be nice if it was just as easy as sticking a dollar in a machine? But change occurs even in this passage today in a very visible way in the appearance of Jesus. We hear about Jesus and the disciples going up on that mountain. The three of them, Peter, James, and John, the closest to him. And as he's getting ready for the week, for the week ahead, the week very coming up very soon is going to be the week in Jerusalem, the very crux of Jesus' ministry. They have this chance to set themselves aside and to pray and to prepare. Changing is a very part of our very understanding of God's saving nature, of what God does for us and for our culture as well. Some of the hardest changes we see are when we want to move or transform an entire existing culture or society into a new one. This is the kind of stuff that happens in organizations all the time, even in churches, and it's always a challenge. Just a couple of years ago, we switched from a more traditional United Methodist committee system to the three committee system we have here at First Church now. And there's always a lot of questions and adjusting around that. But an organization, after it gets used to doing things a certain way, might face a crisis, and then it finds that the new way of doing things is more helpful. In many congregations around our conference, and I dare say probably around the United States, we find fewer and fewer people available to serve on committees and groups. And the American understanding of how best to control an organization, how best to get its mission done, has shifted away from sitting in a lot of meetings to the idea of getting more people out doing. The younger generations especially have issue with sitting in long meetings that seem to go nowhere. If we want to engage younger families in our culture, we need to be prepared to make this shift away from long committee meetings and into a smaller group that makes the decisions less frequently, that gives people more time to get things done. Turning an old organization around to respond to change can be like stirring the Titanic with a lot of icebergs around. It can be scary and feel dangerous, but while it isn't easy, it's often the best thing for everybody involved. It needs to be done with great care in order to bring everybody into this new vision and new future. When Jesus first came on the scene in first century Palestine, he came with an agenda for shifting a culture that was already over a thousand years old. He came as a new leader, the Messiah, and pointed to the crisis that had been plaguing the culture, 
really all of human culture since the beginning. Even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he didn't simply snap his fingers or plunk a dollar in a change machine to make change happen. Experts in culture change point to several key elements for helping people make the shift from old to new. In the cluster of passages surrounding the story we heard today about the transfiguration, we see Jesus speaking with his disciples to give them elements to prepare for change. The conversations Jesus has with them foreshadow how they will bring good news to a culture that's stuck in the old world paradigms and patterns of sin, oppression, and death. First, Jesus creates a sense of urgency by waking people up to what's going to be happening. People need to understand that the current culture is no longer working and that change is needed. An effective change agent identifies both the crises and the opportunities that require an urgent shift in the organization. So he steers the conversation to the very heart of the matter about his messianic mission. In the conversations in the days before the transfiguration, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Or who do people say that I am? And he invites them to consider the kind of Messiah he truly is. Now we know that Peter gets the answer right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah's mission is crucial, and the disciples are enlisted to go forward in this. But here's where the urgent part comes in, a shift in culture that changed that culture around Peter and the disciples. They knew Jesus was coming to take on evil, but they expected it to be done in a triumphant way, perhaps even a warlike way. They wanted Jesus to be a political leader. Peter, not in this gospel per se, not in Luke, but in some of the other gospels, reacts quite violently when Jesus points out that as the Messiah, he must die, go to Jerusalem, be killed, and raised a few days later. Peter blows up. God forbid it. This must not happen. Peter thought of Jesus as his political Messiah, one who was going to be protecting them from the Romans or other occupation. Jesus, however, tells Peter that this is not a good way to be thinking. In fact, that it's straight out of hell itself in the gospel according to Matthew. He is on his way to Jerusalem on an urgent mission to take on evil all right, but he's going to do it in an unexpected way, the way of suffering. This leads us to another element in changing a culture, cast a new vision. The way that Jesus will defeat evil is the way of the cross. It's not going to be a political battle. It's not going to be by taking on the oppressors, but rather by allowing those who would harm him to crucify him to show a willingness to suffer and die, to reconcile people to God, and later on to show God's great saving love that transcends even evil and death by bringing Jesus back. In a world where violence and vengeance are cultural norms, Jesus is casting a very different vision indeed. This is a major culture shift that the church has a hard time grasping, not just Peter. It's not just about seeking power and dominance, but living as servants of Christ in Christ, not only of Christ, but of your enemies, living in service to those who suffer, whether you'll agree with them or not. That's the culture of the kingdom of God that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, which we focused on in previous weeks. It's a different way of living that challenges every way culture and society have functioned before, and it requires a constant nurturing of that vision of Jesus, of loving one another and living it out. While it's not a new vision, it carries with it some of the best of the past. It honors the law and the prophets and looks at the way to live them out in the best way to serve God and oneself. Go ahead and change, girls. 
The story of the Transfiguration continues that motif. It takes Peter, James, and John up onto another mountain six days later, which Matthew's audience would have connected with Jesus with Moses going up on Sinai. Jesus is changed before the disciples. You can go ahead and change to the next slide. With his face shining like the sun, much like Moses after his encounter with God on the mountain. Then Moses appears beside Jesus along with the prophet Elijah. In Jewish tradition, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Furthermore, they represent persons who were not understood in their own lifetime, who worked hard and suffered, and ultimately were taken directly by God to get a glimpse of the glory that had been promised. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah represents the fulfillment of both the prophets and the law. He represents both of their messages coming together into a figure that's just stunning, glorified on the mountain, speaking truth to kings and to noble people, as well as commoners alike, speaking to God on behalf of sinful people, interceding and praying for their behalf. And most importantly, all three of these men, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, lived their entire lives in the service of God. The transfiguration reveals that Jesus has a deep connection to Israel's story. And it's not just that he's equal to Moses and Elijah, but he's superior to them. This was already hinted at in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus said, saying that his understanding was the more clear version of how one should interpret the law or the prophets. And he calls his, his disciples to do the same, not to live merely by the letter of the law, but to demonstrate that love for God and neighbor. But old culture dies hard, and it takes time for people to see what has changed. Peter's behavior right there at the Transfiguration reflects this. He immediately speaks of building three dwelling places or tabernacles to commemorate and prolong this vision of Jesus with Moses and Elijah. He wants to just stay right there, separate himself from the disciples from them by making Jesus, Moses, and Elijah something other with these tabernacles and taking more time staying there and worshiping than going on to the things that Jesus has for them to go ahead and do. He also makes Moses and Elijah equal to Jesus by saying these three like tabernacles. He recognizes this great new glory in Jesus and wants to lift him up to be recognized. But the way that Peter wants to go about it is not the change that Jesus is looking for. It's not the change that Jerusalem or the world needs right then. Jesus does not answer Peter's exuberance about building the tabernacles. Instead, the glory of God overshadows them in a cloud. And God's own voice speaks to them in the same words as Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. God confirms Peter's confession from a few days earlier and confirms that Jesus himself is the true tabernacle, the true memorial, the true place to worship, Emmanuel, God with us. So why did we need this transfiguration moment? and this opportunity for God to point out, this is my son, listen to him. Well, we know that many were present for the angels singing peace on earth back at Jesus' birth. Shepherds saw it, and people were exalted by it. But Peter, James, and John were either infants at that time or were not yet born. And at any moment, they weren't, at any moment, they weren't in Bethlehem to hear the angels' song. Likewise, many of John the Baptist's disciples were present for Jesus' baptism. John the Baptist himself heard God say, this is my beloved son. 
So as readers of the gospel hearing these stories, it's like we ourselves are present for those moments. We already know the great glory that Jesus reflects. We already know Jesus is God's son. We as readers already know the story, know who Jesus fully is. But Peter, James, and John had missed out on those moments. We already know they know something about Jesus, Peter even getting it right, saying that Jesus is Christ. But even though Peter has professed this, he may not have grasped the whole entirety of who Jesus was. Now at this um, transfiguration, was it really that Jesus changed? We're told that Jesus' appearance became bright, shimmering white. Was that really something that physically happened? Or was it just what Peter, James, and John were caused to see? Does it matter? Did Jesus really change anyway? Or was the disciples' perception, Peter's perception of Jesus that changed? I brought a toy with me. Or actually my breakfast. <laughs> now, if I hold this oatmeal tub up for you, what's, what shape would you say that it is? Cylinder, okay, here, last cylinder. If I do that, someone might comment that it's round. Go ahead and change the slide, please. What if I were to say to you that it's square? Depending on what angle you look at it from, it could very well be square. If you're just seeing it in 2D and just see these edges, it could be rectangular or if it were shorter tub square. The slide demonstrates that. It's a common way scientists or philosophers will show that you can look at something from many different angles and get a different perception. If I hold the tub like this or like this, it's not that the shape of the tub changes. It's that our ability to see it is shifted. We get a better idea of the full reality of the tub by looking at it this way. Likewise, it wasn't that Peter or James or John were wrong about Jesus' nature. Everything they had seen and experienced to that point was a revelation of God. Even Peter had gotten it right when saying, thou art the Messiah. It wasn't that Jesus changed in any way when Peter had that revelation or when they saw the transfiguration. It was the disciples' response to Christ that changed, truly inwardly and outwardly different in the way that they understood Jesus from that moment. You know this just because Jesus, when this happens, Peter was silent just briefly. For Peter to be silent at all, even for a moment, is out of character for him. The transfiguration is a foretaste of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's showing us that we're not just going to see Jesus on the cross and suffering in the next week, but reminds us that there's a deeper reality, a deeper reality that's more positive, more powerful than just a man dying on a cross a deeper reality of God's reconciling love. And perhaps the disciples needed this sight to bolster their own for the week that they had ahead. We don't know if they thought much about it during that week. We don't know if Jesus transfigured is what was on Peter's mind when he said that he didn't know him on that Good Friday. But we know that ultimately the disciples were open enough that they could accept the resurrected Jesus. No doubt incidents such as the event on Transfiguration Day led the way for that. People can be resistant to a shift of understanding, though. Peter's lack of understanding was often reflected by his behaviors afterwards. I mentioned the denial on Good Friday. And again later, after Jesus was resurrected, he had to ask Peter time and again, do you love me, to get Peter to understand the message, go and feed God's sheep. Peter did have a remarkable change. It took some time. But the day on the mountain we focused on today was part of that. 
we can all be resistant to change when it crops up in our lives. I had a period in my time of, of my life where I had to go to school. I very much wanted to go into clergy and into ordained ministry from an early age. And I'll admit when I was in college, I was sort of resentful that I had to get this bachelor's degree before I could go on to seminary. And especially I had to study a lot of classes that to me at the time didn't seem to pertain directly to going into ministry. Go ahead and change the next slide. And this painting that I've been showing you off and on today is a fond memory I have of that time, even as I struggled. One of the useless, I thought, courses I was required to take was art history. And so we studied some of the works that they had at the campus. And the University of Arizona, where I got my undergraduate's degree in Tucson, and it pained me this week not to have time to go visit the campus, but they kept us too busy at the clergy gathering. But the campus had its own display of a Spanish retablo, some paintings that had surrounded an altar, and I believe it was the 14th century. And they each depict little different scenes in the life of Christ. I shouldn't say little, these, these paintings are probably as tall as I am. But one that I focused on and ultimately did a paper on was the Transfiguration. And this is part of what you have on the screen is part of the painting. You can see Jesus and Peter in this one, and Peter undergoing that revelation of seeing who Jesus is. Like I said, I was a bit resentful about having to take these classes I thought were a waste of time. But I found that things like the art class taught me about the ways that people perceived Jesus all throughout the centuries, just by the way he was portrayed in art. And I found that by sitting down and writing a paper on this painting, which I was asked to do, drew me to study the scripture and to try to figure out what scriptural references might be hidden in the painting, as well as understanding more about the people who made the painting. Although Peter is in front of Jesus in this painting, you can see that he doesn't really appear bigger like you would expect him to through perspective. He's the same size or if anything smaller. And this was a reflection of hierarchical scale. The most important person in a painting would be the largest, no matter where they were in relation to the viewer. So that was one thing that I learned about how people viewed Jesus in that day. Even if he was standing farther back from the viewer than the front of the painting, you better make him the biggest thing there. It really opened my heart to understand ways that the understand, our understanding of Jesus had evolved over the centuries. I went, I went on to take two or three more art classes, not because I had to, but just because I had room in my schedule and I'd enjoyed it that much. So part of me was changed by viewing this transfiguration painting and studying, studying the scripture. It wasn't just Jesus or the disciples, who's a, who, Jesus or the two prophet and law representative whose appearance had changed that day. I had changed. In a sense, I had been transfigured or transformed through my study of that painting and that culture. That's what Jesus calls all of us to do, is be transformed and changed, not just in what we see, but through the inside. Shifting a culture or a person or a group of people isn't easy. It takes time and constant nurture. When we make the cross-cultural shift to follow Jesus crucified, resurrected, glorified, we will see that Jesus and everything affects our world in a brand new way. When we look upon Christ's works today and capture the change and appearance of Moses and Elijah, when we hear the words and read and ponder together, we are given a great opportunity to be transfigured as well, to understand that out of all messages, all the stories over all the centuries, Christ and the reflection Christ has of the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, these should be primary in our lives. And we should be inspired to live out our lives to reflect the way God's love 
has transformed and changed our own hearts. So be it.